liberal preacher, teacher, scholar will speak of Deutero-Isaiah or Triteroisaiah. What are they saying? They're saying, oh, you know, to tell the future in advance with great specificity is impossible. So they don't want to deny the whole book of Isaiah, but they'll say, well, there was two, maybe even three authors to Isaiah, and some of these guys were recording history. Oh, no, 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 no. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Daniel, and in a message we began yesterday entitled, Dreams Do Come True, we find the prophet Daniel being summoned before King Nebuchadnezzar and successfully identifying the details of the king's nightmare. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy today, we continue to look at the statue that was part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Pastor Brogy notes that after 600 BC, after Babylon came to power, the nation Israel was no longer the foremost nation of the world. But a day will come when Israel is restored. There's coming a time, as this vision will tell us this morning, and other passages in the Word of God, when Israel will be restored. It will happen at the second coming. In fact, it will begin to unfold during the time of the Great Tribulation, but at the second coming, Israel will become center stage and Messiah will rule as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so to begin with, there are several keys to understanding this dream. And first, it concerns four mighty world powers. So let's think about the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of men. Notice, if you will, verse 37, you, O king are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Look at verse 39. After you, there will also arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Look at verse 40. There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Four times, kingdom, 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 kingdom. And between verses 37 and 44, the term kingdom is used nine times. So the dream concerns world kingdoms. And you will notice in which manner he interprets this dream. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation before the king. He comes as the man of God with a sense of authority. He doesn't say, well, this is what we think it might mean. No, this is precisely what it means. And before he's done, he will say at the end of verse 45, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So there's no mystery to this piece of prophecy. Daniel is going to tell us exactly what it means. Now we're told specifically that the head of gold represents the first kingdom. So beginning in verse 37, he mentions four successive kingdoms. The first kingdom, of course, is the Babylonian kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar is that head of gold. That's number one if you're still with me, all right? You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Notice, God gives it. We see the sovereignty of God all the way through this prophet. God raises up rulers. God puts them down. God, the God of heaven has given you the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. He is emphasizing to Nebuchadnezzar that what he experiences doesn't purely come from his own achievement, but from the hand of a mighty God. I have written out in my margin, I put it out there this week because it came to my mind, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? 
And if you did receive it, then why do you boast like you've not received it? What do you have that you did not receive? A pastor came to me not long ago, a young pastor. He said, Pastor, will you pray for me that God will help me to stay humble? And I said, well, what do you have to be proud about? What do you have that you did not receive? People talk about pastors getting a big head. That's typically because they don't have a renewed mind. They don't understand that what they have is from God. And what you have this morning, whether it's your natural talents or your spiritual gifts, is all from God. What do you have that you have not received? And when you understand that, it changes your entire perspective. John the Baptist said, a man can receive nothing except what has been given to him from heaven. So Daniel wants us to know right off that the head is this king, and God put him there. And of course, this guy has a pride problem. He doesn't really acknowledge that the God of heaven put him here, that the God of heaven is the one who gave him all this strength and power, and God is going to humble him. In fact, we're going to read about it in the fourth chapter, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to write Daniel chapter 4. And it is so perfect, and it's exactly what God wants. He's going to include it in the canon of Scripture. Look at verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold, clear as can be. So here's the statue. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And what a fitting emblem to describe Babylon with gold. The Babylonians were enamored with gold. Remember now, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 42 plus years. And even in the introduction of the book, when the kingdom was, in many respects, not rich and wealthy, he had a hunger for gold. Do you remember in the opening chapter, verse 2, he comes and he also wants some of the vessels of the house of God. And when we come to that drunken party in the fifth chapter, we're going to find Belshazzar drinking from those golden vessels from the temple. But the gold just grows and grows, and they become wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. The splendor and wealth of the Babylonian empire is beyond measure. And in Babylonian cuneiform, we have a record of what a mighty empire it was. Herodotus, who visited Babylon some 90 years after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, said he had never seen so much gold any place in all of his life. The temples, he said, the chapels, the furniture, the utensils were all made out of gold. When we come to the next chapter, he's going to make a gigantic statue out of gold. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. You know his head had to swell. He has this sense of self-importance. But God is going to remind him that his kingdom will not last forever. There's a second kingdom. Look at verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And this second kingdom is not characterized by gold, but by silver. The head of the statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver. And so here it is in this picture. This, of course, is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia, write it down, it's number two. This kingdom is Medo-Persian Empire. Now, how do we know that? You say, well, right above this, there's a, uh, there's a title. It says in the, here in the New American Standard, Medo-Persia and Greece, describing the next two kingdoms. Look, that, that's not part of the Hebrew text. That's put there by the publisher. And one thing the New American Standard does well for us 
is it puts it in bold type and it puts it in italics. Now, since the time of Tyndale's Bible in the Geneva Bible, the translators would put certain English words in italics. Not like we do in modern English for emphasis, but to this day when you see italics in your English text, it means that those words are not found in the original. If you've ever worked between languages and you go from the original language to the receptor language, sometimes you have to add words that are clearly implied in the original language and is assumed and is there in the original language, but not specifically there because of the way certain peoples communicate. And so, very often in our English Bibles, they'll write in italics those words because they're implied, or sometimes because of the structure of a language, you have to add words or it won't read smoothly. But you can see where those words are. You say, well, the only reason we know that this is Medo-Persia and Greece, these next two kingdoms, because the Lockman Foundation put them there, they put them there the same reason we have chapter and verse division. The chapter and verse divisions help you find your way around the Bible. And the chapter titles, you're looking for something, you can see at the top of a page or in the middle of the page, various chapter titles. Oh yeah, that's what I'm looking for. It's in this paragraph. But we know it because Scripture tells us in other places, right out in the margin next to this verse, Daniel 5 and verse 28. In Daniel 5, 28, God specifically identifies this empire as the Medo-Persian empire. Perez, this is the night of that drunken party when the hand literally appears on the wall. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. So back here in chapter 2, God gives Babylon a notice. You're going to be destroyed. The Medo-Persian empire is going to take you over. And it did on that night. Now, why silver? Well, number one, silver is an inferior metal to gold. And as powerful and as rich as Medo-Persia was not as rich and mighty as Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Now, they collected silver, but not gold in the same level that this man did. Let me read to you a passage again from Daniel 5 and verse 19. He's describing Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, "...because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whoever he wanted to kill, he killed." Whoever he wanted to spare, he spared. Whomever he wanted to elevate, he elevated. Whoever he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when you come to this second kingdom, the same despotic authority is not there. It's a strong kingdom, but we're going to see in the sixth chapter, Darius, who's a Medo-Persian king, has his hands tied. How? By the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So he's not the same kind of despot. Can you see Nebuchadnezzar having his hands tied? Not on your life. He is a vicious Hitler of his day. He plucks out people's eyes, and Jeremiah records that when his officers don't treat him the way he wants, he has them burned alive and roasted. But silver, of course, is a good emblem for this empire because the Persians were known for their broad and efficient collection of taxes throughout the empire, and they would repeatedly collect silver coinage. Now, the third empire, the third government, has a belly and a thigh of bronze, of bronze. Look at Daniel 2.39. After you, after Medo-Persia, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. 
Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So here's metallic man. Once again, here's the third part pictured here on the next slide. And you can write in under point three, the kingdom of Greece, the kingdom of Greece. You say, how do we know this is the kingdom of Greece? Because of the chapter title? Of course not. Because of Daniel 8.21 and Daniel 11.21. You might want to write that out in the margin. Daniel 8.21 and 11.21. God specifically names Greece as this third empire. And when we come to chapters 8 and chapters 11, we're going to learn beginning in 334 BC that Alexander the Great conquers Medo-Persia. And God is going to tell all about what this great king, Alexander the Great, is going to do ever before he's even born. Now, sometimes God will name a person by name, a king by name, even before he's born. So we studied in the introductory sermon, Cyrus, who is named 150 years by the prophet Isaiah before he's born. What do the liberals do with that? Well, it, again, you can find out a whole lot about whether a man really loves the living God and appreciates the authority of Scripture by the way he describes someone like Isaiah. So a liberal preacher, teacher, scholar will speak of Deutero-Isaiah or Tritero-Isaiah. What are they saying? They're saying, oh, you know, to tell the future in advance with great specificity is impossible. So they don't want to deny the whole book of Isaiah, but they'll say, well, there was two, maybe even three authors to Isaiah, and some of these guys were recording history. Oh, no, 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 no. In the New Testament, all three sections are quoted and given credit to one prophet, Isaiah. That's the way the Lord Jesus sees it. That's the way I'm going to see it. And so sometimes God specifies a person even by name before they're born, or sometimes he describes the person so vividly it can't apply to anyone else but the person that we know from human history. And by the way, the liberals do not deny that this description of Alexander the Great and the four generals that will follow after he dies, he conquers all these great nations of the world, and he sits down and he cries because there's no more nations to conquer. And after his death, his four generals take over, and it's divided into four parts. And they don't deny that. They say, clearly, that's what Daniel is saying. He's just writing history. But we're going to see that that's impossible, not just on the authority of Christ's words, but because of the nature of some of the prophecies and some of the Dead Sea Scroll findings. All right? Stay with me now. So here's this king that's coming. And it's described by bronze. And what an appropriate symbol. You know, in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I grew up, there was an armory called the Higgins Armory. And the Higgins family had the largest collection of medieval armor in the world. It was an extraordinary building. They just closed it a year ago, and they gave all their collection to the Smithsonian. And as a young boy, we would go there many times, and I was just enamored by all this armor, right down to the little puppy dogs they'd put armor on. But after I became a believer, I went back with a different set of eyes because I was also interested, though a very limited collection, in their Roman armor collection and their Greek armor collection. And if you know anything about Grecian soldiers, you know that the poet spoke of the bronze, brazen-coated Greeks. Bronze is an excellent symbol of this Greek empire. Now, it's not as valuable as silver or gold. And of course, if you know anything about Greece, they're not as strong as Medo-Persia. Why? Because they lack administration. And because they lack administration, good administration, I suppose much like modern Greece, 
they end up crumbling to the next world power. Verse 40 describes the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. Let me read it to you. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. And as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Here it is pictured again. This kingdom is symbolized initially by iron. Repeated over and over and over again, iron. And so we speak every childhood Grammar school child who studies Roman history has heard of the Iron Legions of Rome. And of course, 50 years before the birth of our Savior, Rome comes into power, they take over Greece, and they rule for over three centuries. They are a very strong nation. This is a nation, of course, that puts the Lord Jesus on the cross. But I find it very interesting to note that this fourth empire begins with legs of iron, but it concludes with feet of both iron and clay. Look at verse 41. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. What is he saying? He's saying this empire will start incredibly strong, but it will gradually be weakened. Look at verse 42. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. So it turns from two legs of iron that verse 33 notes that would have described the eastern and western portions of the Roman Empire. Remember, they're not a power yet. At this point, they're just a, a little tribe by the Tiber River. They're virtually non-existent. They're, they're, it's about the size of Yemisee. I mean, they're a nothing people. But God is writing the future ever before it happens. Not that the people in Yemersee are nothing. Forgive me if you're from Yemersee. But here, uh, point five, uh, next slide here, we, we see the feet of iron mixed with common clay. So it's strong at, at its inception, but it begins to weak. Now, question. Did the Roman Empire ever divide into ten parts? No, it did not. Never history records no such thing. And yet Daniel is describing a tenfold division of this empire. And that's why I say, as the next two visions in the 7th and 8th chapter will underscore, there are four nations that are in view. But this fourth nation will basically be what we call Rome 1 and Rome 2. Rome initially, but then a coming revived Roman empire that is still in the future. You say, how do you get that? very clear from the Scripture. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically that sometimes in a verse of Scripture, God will give uh, a prophecy with a gap of time between it. He'll lump together two prophecies in one verse. And I'll give you many illustrations of that before we're done, but let me just give you one that is familiar to many of you, Isaiah 9, because we read it at Christmas, for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And we say, oh yeah, that's Christmas. That's the incarnation. But we don't typically quote the next verse. There will be no end to the increase of his government of, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Why don't we quote that verse? 
because it fills out verse 6. And when Jesus came the first time, the governments of this world did not rest on his shoulders. That will not happen until he comes again. And so between Daniel 2.40 and Daniel 2.41, there's a gap of time. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this out. All you have to do is keep reading. But let's first read verse 43. And then that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another, these ten toes, these ten nations, and the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So the Roman Empire that begins with iron begins to regress into a state of clay mixed with iron, and it progressively gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And then he describes these ten toes that are mixed of iron and clay. Now, if you take iron and you bring it to its heating point and it melts, and you take clay and you turn it into a liquid, and you pour them together in one mold, they will not become a stronger alloy. Now, some, some metals, you can take two metals, and you mix them together, and what's the resultant is a stronger metal. But the cast will be brittle. The iron, when it cools, will not mix with the clay. And so he's describing this coming ten-nation empire that is brittle, but it is held together, notice, by the seed of men. Now, we're going to come to that. That's important. Through intermarrying that is taking place, this ten-nation coalition is going to take a certain cohesiveness on. Now, what does that refer to? Well, we'll come to it in the seventh chapter. So hold on. But don't get lost in the detail. What I want you to see is that there's a gap of time between the 40th and the 31st verse. And again, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure that out. All you need to do is keep reading. Look at verse 44. In the days of those kings, these ten kings, by the way, he's going to describe a ten-horned creature as will John in the Revelation. John in the Revelation is going to speak of a ten-nation coalition. And I believe that God is setting the stage for that coalition, and we're going to study it. Some incredible things are happening in our lifetime. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to these kingdoms, but it, it itself will endure forever. When did this happen? When will this happen? In the days of those kings. In the days of what kings? In the days of those kings representing ten toes and ten nations in this image. And who is going to do this? The Messiah himself. Remember, he's speaking about the latter days. And it is not by accident that the Apostle John in the 17th chapter of the Revelation speaks of this same ten-nation coalition that will be in existence during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's not as strong as the original. It doesn't have the same cohesiveness as the original, but it does have some of that iron strength, and the seed of men will hold it together. And I think part of that is being fulfilled through what we're seeing in the Muslim world. The Muslims have been pouring into the revived, into old, the old European Roman Empire. And they're taking over. And of course, some of the presidents and prime ministers are concerned because they're losing their identity as a people. And of course, the Muslims are not only marrying with each other, they're having babies like we're not. The average Christian has two kids. The average Muslim has seven kids. You wonder why they're growing so fast? You see these refugees coming from the Middle East? 
How old are most of them? 80% of the Muslims in the world are under the age of 35. Not old men who are coming across the border. These are young men, 18, 19, 20 years of age. And they're multiplying and they're filling Europe up and the mosques are beginning to come up everywhere and they'll come up here in these United States. They say in another 20 years we'll have 50 billion Muslims in this nation. Now there are people for whom Christ died. And you need to have compassion on those people. You need to do everything that you can to reach these people for Christ. But there's going to be a cohesiveness through the seed of men in these ten nations. And from this coalition is going to come, as we will see, the Antichrist. And by the way, Daniel will say more about the Antichrist than any book in all of the Bible. You're going to learn more about Antichrist in this prophet than any other single place. So these are the kingdoms of men. But in addition to the kingdoms of man, there is the kingdom of Messiah, beginning now in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all the worldly kingdoms, and it will endure forever. Verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. All of a sudden, at the end of the dream, this statue is going to be moved. And this is why it's so terrifying to the king. Look again at verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And so this stone that is coming and it strikes the statue, not on the head, not on the breast, not on the thighs, not on the legs, but on the feet of clay. And according to verse 45, this stone is detached from a mountain and it's made without human hands. And it's this stone that crushes the feet. And Daniel, just so that you know in your mind that this is not some fantasy, he ends the verse by saying, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Well, who or what is this stone? Again, the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. This is clearly a reference to Messiah. Beginning in Genesis all the way through the Bible, Messiah is pictured as a stone and repeatedly described even in the New Testament in the same way. In Exodus 17, Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 10 when he recounts for the Corinthians Israel's history. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, he says, and they all, the Jewish people in the wilderness, they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. In Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And when you come to the New Testament, that verse is quoted five times in the Synoptic Gospels, in the Acts, as well as in 1 Peter. Jesus Christ is the rock, the foundation upon which we can build our lives. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, as your rock, let us send you a pamphlet and message entitled, Would You Like God as Your Friend? In this presentation, Pastor Brogy defines five spiritual laws that apply to every man, woman, and child. To get a free copy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and ask for Would You Like God as Your Friend? 
And to listen again to today's message or any of the messages in our study of the book of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. For a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478 and request program DAN3, entitled, Dreams Do Come True. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our message entitled, Dreams Do Come True, as we search the scriptures.